Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, to the second of the special editions of the History of England on the Roman Baths at Bath. This week we're going to look at how the baths were constructed, how they worked, what you did when you went there. You will in this and in the other two episodes actually find that there's some noise at times in the background as the life of the museum carries on around us and we move from place to place so things can sound a bit different in each place. Please bear with me. Most of the interviews are with Stephen Clues, who is the manager of the Roman Bath Museum. And we started by talking about the source of it all, by the spring, still flowing after all these years. So Stephen, tell me what we're looking at here. Here we're standing in the depths of the Roman Bath Museum, standing next to a huge outflow of water coming from the spring, which is the central part of this enormous site. The water here has come out of the ground in great depth. We're looking at water that may have risen as much as one or two kilometres. How long has the water been in the ground before it arrives at the surface, do we know? Um, Isotopic analysis of the uh, minerals present in the water. Uh, What uh, we can see is that the water coming out has come through a large cycle. It originally fell as rain. It's not a byproduct of volcanic activity at right. great depth. It was originally rainwater that passed down into the ground, and we think this may have originally fallen as rain as much as 10,000 years ago. Great, thanks. OK, let's go and carry on the conversation inside. Tell me what was here before the Romans arrived and made this, uh, made this complex. Well, as you look at the spring today, you see that it's uh, surrounded by tall, overlooking buildings. But of course, the scene in the past was never anything like that. Before any form of human intervention, it would have been effectively a muddy pool flowing over, probably with a trickle of water, finding its way eventually to the river. And that would have been the scene when the first people that we know of left their traces here. And this was in the Mesolithic. We're going back about seven to 9,000 years ago. At that time, uh, this is before the advent of agriculture, people would have been uh, hunting or gathering in this area. It could be that animals were attracted to the spring and that would have been a particular attractant to people to hunt them. Certainly in the spring, we do have a lot of flint tools which could have been used in hunting. 
However, we have more than just a few. We have hundreds. And we think that what was going on is that people were deliberately throwing finished flint tools into the spring, probably as offerings to a deity, because the hot water coming from the spring was something for which people had no natural explanation. And if they had no natural explanation for it, the obvious explanation was that they were the work of the gods. And clearly powerful ones who had the ability to do this, so spirits that should be respected. Does that carry on? Interestingly, it doesn't carry on. As far as the archaeological record goes, we have a long gap of several thousand years before we pick up any other traces of human activity around the spring. This really comes uh, in the late Iron Age, where we see some coins thrown into the spring, but we also see a small gravel platform built on the edge of the spring, almost like a podium where one could uh, step out onto the edge of the spring. And it may be that this was a point where ceremonies were taking place. If it was, we haven't found a lot of Iron Age objects thrown in. We just have a handful of Iron Age coins. But they are very late, and they could even have been still in circulation when the Romans invaded Britain and when the Roman development of the spring took place. Right, so it could be that it's just an overlap with the Roman period. or it yeah, could just be a short overlap. Okay. Yeah. And we've no idea about why we have this gap in activity? Uh, no, we don't. If we look in the surrounding area, you don't see uh, large settlements in, in the immediate vicinity of the springs. It's yeah. rather curious. For some it's, reason it just falls out of knowledge for a yes, yes. But of course, not, not every human activity leaves an archaeological trace. Yes, indeed. It has some periods of being a, a religious site before, or we think religious mm. site, before the Romans arrived. And the Romans arrived... The Roman invasion of Britain is in 43 AD, and probably within 20 years or so, works here are underway. We know that something significant on the, the site had actually been completed by 76 AD, because we have a stone that tells us that. OK, handy. <laughs> That's nice then, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right, great, it's perfect. Stephen and I then descended into the museum to stand looking across part of the precinct. Don't know about you, but I've always thought of the Roman baths as well. Well, Roman baths, quite possibly because of the name. You know, on the old, the clues in the name concept. But, as I found out, the baths were just one part of what was a religious complex as well. So, we descended into the museum to find out what the site used to contain and how it was engineered. Stephen, I've always thought of the baths as the bath itself, but the site was actually more complicated than that, was it? It certainly was. In addition to the baths, there was also a grand temple, which was a place of worship. And, of course, the spring itself was the focal point to the site. It wasn't um, a neglected pool. It was something that had a status in its own right. So for someone coming to this site in antiquity, once the buildings had been put in place... They would have seen a grand bathhouse, but they would also have seen a spring, a sacred space. And that spring was not just supplying hot water to the bathhouse. It was also within the corner of the sacred precinct of the temple. And so they would also have seen the temple. And indeed, if we were visitors from afar, it may be that the first place we would visit in this complex would be the temple, perhaps to give thanks for our safe passage here or to uh, invoke favour with the goddess if we would, say, come here seeking a cure or something like this, in effect to introduce ourselves to give our visiting card. 
How similar is this kind of complex to others you might find in the wider Roman world? If we take uh, those same people who come here from afar, if they were indeed travellers from the Roman world, they may have seen places with a resemblance to this. Springs were sacred places. We know this because uh, Seneca, the tutor of Nero, tells us that. that, uh, uh, They were regarded as places that were divine. They were seen as places where spirits dwelt. Mm. So uh, elsewhere in the world, where there were springs, where there were headwaters and rivers, these could be places where one might encounter the divine. And the response was to build a temple as a dedication to the deity of that particular place. For instance, uh, in the Vosges Mountains in France, there's the site of Grand. There's a spring, there's a a temple dedicated to Apollo Granus, the local deity there. And it also has developed into a small town. I understand that this is a World Heritage Site that you can go and see? Uh, Yes, it's part of the World Heritage Site in Bath. The definition of that embraces more than simply the Roman. Uh Um, Really, it's picking up on the story of 10,000 years of human engagement with the springs. Uh, It's not just a World Heritage Site Mm. as we normally think of them. It also contains a specific collection which has been given a memory of the world status by UNESCO. And these are the the so-called curse tablets from Bath, uh, the prayers to the deity uh, in which people seek the righting of the wrong, uh, their prayers for justice. How far was this a purely Roman site? Did the Britons get involved in this site and how did they get involved? The local population would certainly have been involved. The original construction took place not very long after the Roman invasion. It used materials and techniques that were not native to Britain. It was an imported technology. So people with the relevant skills to have led that work would have probably been Roman engineers perhaps Mm. attached to the army. So I think we can see the central power of Rome. We can see its fingerprints on this site uh, in the way it's been built and the kind of buildings that were built. But it was here, of course, in the heart of the territory of the Dubunni. It was close to the territory of Mm -hmm. the Belgi and of the um, uh, Duratriges. These are the British tribes who are here, right? So in terms of that landscape, in the first century Mm. AD, they would have been farming, they would have provided labour. All of this would have been involved Mm. here. Tell me about how the engineering of the complex worked. What went into building this and how does it work? Uh, The centre is focused around the spring, and you have to, in your imagination, see that as the central place. So, first of all, there was controlling the water from the spring. It wasn't just a muddy pool that they took the overflow from. Rather, they did a bit of fairly serious engineering around it. This involved driving oak piles Mm. into the surrounding area of the spring. Having driven them in to a significant depth, they then used that as a platform on which to build a stone structure, tile foundation and stone structure on top. And uh, this was done using large blocks of ashlar, and then internally that chamber was lined with lead. So in effect they created a tank, and uh, the water at the top of the tank was therefore higher than the level of the baths uh, immediately to the south of the spring. So this meant that water could flow naturally from the spring 
through the Roman side. They harnessed the power of gravity and having done that, all they had to do to control the flow, to fill one bath, to empty another, they could do all that by the use of sluices. They could even set up diverts, so if they wanted to clean the main bath on site, they simply applied the sluices, the water went another way and they had an empty bath that they could clean out at their leisure. And how much of that can we still see? Uh, You can see uh, pretty well all of it. You can't see under the water in the spring to where the chamber was lined with lead, of course. You can just look down and see it seemingly as a pool. You can see the channel through which water flowed from the spring to the great bath. You can see the baths themselves. You can see some lead pipe that's in place beside the great bath. That's one of the things I loved about the baths, mm-hmm. actually coming to see it, is that you can still see so much of the working, so much of the water is still, yes. is still around. You can see where it comes from, where it went. It's fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and uh, that's the water engineering. Then there's the main structure itself, the huge columns, the arches. Some of these all survived. We also know that the roof was barrel vaulted. Uh, the reason we know that is that uh, when it eventually met its demise, that roof fell into the Great Bath. And so when the Great Bath was excavated, there was no question over what the roof construction was because you could see it It in the bottom of the bath. And that is now displayed right next to the bath. Perfect. So would this have been unusual in its engineering? Was this uh, reasonably standard engineering used around the Roman world or do we see any innovation here? Uh, It was contemporary engineering. The idea of barrel vaulting was fairly new. Within the bathhouse itself, uh, we see the use of hypercourse because although there was abundant hot water, the, uh, the rooms themselves, for the most part, were unheated, except for those rooms that were specifically heated. In the first century BC, the Romans had perfected the technology for separating heat from smoke. So the rooms were heated but the smoke was separated out. So you say it's contemporary engineering, sort of age that we date this engineering to? It's contemporary engineering for the first century AD, the later first century. Work probably started here about 10 or 20 years after the Roman invasion, which is quite quick, really. (laughs) And the baths remained in use, a going concern, an ever-expanding growing concern, really, until uh, the end of the 4th century, beginning of the 5th century AD. Uh, we know they continue to be used in some way after that, right. um, but it becomes less clear. So that speed of them constructing the bar initially, does that tell us anything about how important this site is? Uh, well, I think it would have taken several years. Mm. So that implies someone with a certain amount of foresight, a certain amount of vision making this decision. And indeed, it fits comfortably with the pattern we see of the Romanisation of Britain, in which uh, not just architecture, but other other forms of government and activity, etc., are rolled out. And people start to adopt Roman practices in everyday life. So they're planning for the long term as almost as soon as they're here. Sort of yes, thing. they are. They have the confidence to use the, their own technology, to use their own approaches. Yeah. And what's interesting is that clearly a significant part of the population buys into this. It's not a case of the, the population being in a state of permanent revolt. They're not. Thank you. Now, I would hate to be awarded the Professor of the Blessed Obvious Prize, but you can't have a Roman bath without heat. Ah, I hear you say, but the waters are hot, and you are as ever as sharp as a needle. However, I am reliably informed that even here at Aquae Sulis, man-made heat was needed. 
Those lovers of medieval history among you will know that smoke-filled halls are a feature of early medieval history, and this despite the fact that the Romans had apparently cracked the concept of separating heat from smoke. This is where the hypercourse came in, and Victoria was at hand to tell me all about it. There are pictures on the website, by the way, but just so you know, we're looking at a stone floor with piles of flat bricks and beyond an opening into a chamber at the bottom of the floor. You then have to imagine a floor laid on top of said piles of bricks in Roman times, with the chamber next door also below floor level and hidden from sight. Anyway, Victoria. I'm with Victoria. Victoria is a visitor services assistant yep. and your specialism is this pile of bricks that we are looking at. Do you want to tell me what they are? Yes, okay, so here we've got hypercourse. It's basically the Roman heating system. Um, so the Romans were pretty advanced. Um, they actually had an underfloor heating system um, long before we've sort of used one, I have right. to say. So it does look like a pile of bricks. They are specially designed, though. Right, specially um, designed bricks. Yes, okay. yes, mm-hmm. of course. So the bricks themselves, they are made out of clay, mm-hmm. usually just left out in the sun in a mould, and then removed. They would be stacked up um, with sort of layers of basically like a form of concrete, which right. is quite cool for the Romans, um, and stacked to about 60 centimetres high, and then actually covered up in a right. floor. And inside this, it sort of creates a bit of a subspace. Because of the grid pattern that we've got going on here, it means that the fire, or the furnace that was actually buried yeah. inside the floor, would produce a lot of heat. It would heat the piles, it would heat the air between right. the floor above, and there's actually even sort of flue-style or chimney-style gaps in the walls as well, which generally made the place uh, very, very warm, basically. Right. It's a very simple design. There's actually, so the Romans used three different designs in right. total. This one is actually called a column one, which you can sort of see. It's yeah. made up of small columns. And there's also things called a channel one, which you've sort of got a bit of an idea here, where they actually have, would have a furnace, and then these sort of masonry channels will be carved out of the stone um, right. to actually move the hot air around that I way. I see, instead. so rather than building the stacks up, exactly, you they have it into the floor. As exactly, it were. Right. yeah. And then there's actually basically a composite, which is a combination of the two, usually something with the little pillars inside, right. and then it would actually have the channels to sort of disperse the heat as well. The Romans having the sort of fire was a much safer way of heating buildings. Yeah. Preemptive to that, they would have had sort of a fire in the middle of a room. Smoke inhalation becomes yeah. a bit of an issue. So this was a lot safer way to heat the rooms. So you managed to separate the smoke from the heat, as it were, which exactly, is uh, yeah. Yeah, a trick that they f- we forget for a few hundred years afterwards. We're very good yeah. at doing that, I have to say, yeah. after the Romans leave. So the fire itself, they could actually control the heat a lot of that, mm-hmm. depending on what sort of fuel they would use. So the different types of wood would produce different amounts of heat. We don't know exactly how hot a lot That's of these rooms would have got, right. but there has been some analysis of some remains that have been found in various different hypercourse systems. So yeah, the fire itself could get between 330 and 410 oh, wow. degrees Celsius, so really, really, really hot. Warm. Is, there, is there any range estimate of how warm the rooms would have got, or is it completely unknowable? Our best guess would be somewhere around sort of 40 degrees Celsius. I mean, that's a similar sort of standard um, that we do have in our own spas and the steam rooms that we use and things. But it's very warm. Certainly for the Romans, the underfloor heating system was part of their bathing. Basically, the warmer they got, the sweatier they got. And that's how they partly cleaned. Because they thought by sweating, they released all of the dirt and impurities from their skin. It was also actually designed quite effectively by having the furnace beyond the boundaries of the building. And you could actually heat multiple rooms but they would actually be get, uh, getting progressively cooler. So you'd have the hot room, which was the caldarium, which was the primary mm-hmm. steam room, and then you'd move into, say, the tepidarium, which is the warm room. I see. Yeah. That's a fantastic little wrinkle. So yeah. in actual fact, you help your system of cooling down just by the way you locate your fire, as it were. Exactly, yeah. So it was a very 
quite a simple sort of idea, yeah. but very efficient and a very effective sort right. of method. And did they need cleaning? That they did, yes. They did require a fair bit of maintenance. Right. So they would have had slaves or actually private houses would even have hypercourses as well. Right. So in which case it might have been one of the household workers would actually have to right. crawl in there okay. and give it a good clean right. as exactly. well. And was this very common technology or, and is this... We don't really know exactly when it was invented. And the first references we get is by a Roman scholar called Vitruvius. And he writes in the late 1st century BC. He basically suggests that uh, it was being used from early 1st century. But it's actually probably likely used quite earlier okay. before that. Right. And it's just the first time that someone's actually written about it. Certainly, it was a fairly common technology across the Roman Empire, particularly in bathhouses. What it wasn't so common is to have them in sort of these private houses uh, because they were expensive to run. Having uh, someone have to stoke a fire pretty much almost 24-7 was an expensive sort of thing to do. But certainly they have been found in sort of all over the Roman Empire. Great. Brilliant. Thank you. That's fantastic. Thank, Thank you very much. I was curious then about how things actually worked day to day on the site and how it was managed. I was introduced to one of the characters of the original complex and we started off talking about the religious side and a day in the life of the complex. We were down in the museum again and one of the nice features there were the videos showing how the precinct would once have looked, which helps you visualise everything and put it in its place. And then we went to talk about what you might do if you were visiting the baths rather than visiting the temple. And finally, I wanted to know how the baths came to an end. Did it end in an orgy of violence, or did the baths just fade gently away? Stephen, we're standing by the gravestone here from Gaius Calpurnius Receptors. Tell me more about the gravestone and what it and he tells us about the way this precinct was run. What it's telling us is that the man here, Gaius Calpurnius Receptus, was the sacerdot, which is the priest of the goddess Sulis. And it also tells us that he died at the age of 75 and that this tombstone was set up by his freedwoman wife. Well, that's okay insofar as it goes, but when you look at it, it's not an ordinary gravestone. It's actually cut into the shape of an altar. So what we see here is a gravestone that uh, actually reflects his occupation in life. The top of it would, on an altar, have been a point where perhaps a small sacrifice uh, might have been made. And this takes us into the heart of Roman religious practice, because to have a tombstone like this in a nearby graveyard, This might be a place where people would come back, say 12 months or so later on an anniversary, perhaps to carry out a small ceremony beside the gravestone. That's the kind of detail you can get from objects like this. But in terms of his role, this is the priest of the goddess Sulis. That means he was probably the person in charge of the religious complex here. And because the hot water from the spring which rose in the corner of the sacred precinct, then flowed into the baths. The baths themselves were effectively furnished with holy water. And so bathing in those baths, you wouldn't just have bathed in hot water, you would have bathed in hot holy water. So there may well have been a religious dimension to the bathing practice, as well as to visiting the temple adjacent to the spring. Do we know anything about how the precinct was run? There must have been a lot of people involved. It was a large temple complex. The bathhouse itself was also large. It would probably have had its own bathhouse manager who would have had staff, bath attendants, etc. There may well have been a hierarchy of priests. 
from looking at the plans that we see, we can see that the religious buildings occupy a large part of what was Roman Bath. It could be that almost the entire town was under religious control or very close to being under religious control, in which case this person would have been the central point of managing that process. Where did these people come from? Were they local? Did they come from other parts of the empire? Do we know anything about that? Yes, we do know quite a lot of information about where people come from, from their tombstones. This is because the tombstone often says which tribe they belong to. And social organisation at that time meant that uh, in the absence of nation states, people saw their identity in terms of their tribe. So it's often mentioned on the tombstone which one they came from. So the tombstone of Rizonia Aventina tells us that uh, she was a tribeswoman of the Mediometrici, which we know from other reasons was a tribe in northeastern Gaul. We also know from her tombstone that she died here at the age of 56. We don't know much else about her apart from that. We know that a sculptor came from an area near Chartres. So you can build a picture of where people are coming from. So it's quite an international site. Quite a few of the inscriptions refer to people who were born overseas and died here. From what we know of other places and other sites, actually there was a lot of mobility in the Roman world and it was not unusual for people to move about. There was a common language. This makes a a big difference. Take me through the normal day in the life of the centre here. I suppose it would start, first of all, very early in the morning. Uh, It would start uh, at daybreak, whenever that happened to be. It might indeed start before daybreak. It would consist, first of all, of people arriving at the site. They would not have been resident here, but they probably wouldn't have lived very far away. The uh, central complex of Bath is slightly separately located to what was originally a a kind of more conventional artisan sort of area. So I think you would have perhaps seen an early morning scene of people uh, walking to the site as if it was down a lane, slightly offset from the main focus of the settlement. And so in the surrounding properties, there would have been not just people working directly in it, but also people who had significant roles in relation to it or people who were attracted by it, perhaps local landowners who wanted a townhouse. So there's that early morning picture. And of course, on arrival here, they would be getting the place into good order to receive visitors. When that moment arrived, there may have been someone on the door to take money. If there was, they wouldn't have taken very much because bathhouses, if they had charges, were usually very low. The idea was they were accessible to everybody. There had been the routines to go through. There were the fires to maintain Within the bathhouse were heated rooms. The only reason they were heated is because someone was out in the woods cutting timber, bringing that in in carts, stacking it somewhere to keep the furnaces going. And there would have been several of those furnaces around the perimeter of this site. And one of the nice things about the museum is that you can see evidence from a number of different trades. I think what you're saying is it's in the middle of an economic network. It is, yes. Indeed, when it was built, all kinds of skills were brought in. Uh, Masons, uh, brickmakers, plasterers, painters, decorators. All of these skills were brought to bear. 
As we go through the day, you may find in this particular bathhouse, the people coming to visit were both men and women, and at the same time, which isn't always the case. Sometimes it's separate, and men might come at a different time of day to women. The reason I'm saying that is that on this site, we have the development of facilities in two places that are very similar. So this could have allowed for gender separation within the site, but nevertheless, both being present at the right. same time. Then those uh, people who are customers, because they came for some time, may want to take some form of refreshment or a snack or something like this. In which case you've got the bun seller or the oyster seller, someone like this turning up to offer his wares to, to the people in the bathhouse. So in the second century, there might have been somebody selling them bath buns. In effect, yes, in absolutely. The other sorts of snacks you would get would be, say, small sausages. Uh, yes, indeed, something probably akin to a bath bun. <laughs> <laughs> You're making me feel hungry. Okay, so the visitors arriving, they get themselves set, and then they go to the baths or they go to the temple. You wouldn't necessarily go to the temple on the same day that you visit the bathhouse. They're not uh, inextricably linked. But for some people, that would have been relevant. In which case, they would probably have gone to the temple first and then uh, to make a small offering or something, perhaps uh, uh, in search of better health. And then at that point, they would go to the bathhouse. Here we're a bit short on hard evidence, yeah. uh, which means in our imaginations we can actually have them doing this in yeah. any order we like. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about people who came to the baths, as well as coming to the temple precinct. When they came to the baths, what did they do? First of all, you'd negotiate entry, uh, which uh, may have been free or may have been a small charge, token charge. Uh, you were then headed off to a changing room. Probably a ladies' and a gentleman's changing room in separate places. From there, um, having stripped off, perhaps into a light tunic, uh, or perhaps just being completely naked, right. you would uh, move through into a warm room, uh, logically enough, and uh, you would spend some time there as your body adjusts. You might uh, decide to employ a bathhouse attendant mm. if you wanted a massage or uh, some other form of treatment. Then you would move into a hotter room, and uh, that would be really quite hot. Right. So you might need, uh, say, wooden patterns on your feet. You would spend uh, a certain amount of time there, but probably not too much because actually it could get quite uncomfortable. Yeah. Within that space, there would probably have been bowls mm. or uh, um, uh, even small fountains where you could take water. Uh, in one space, we have foot baths. And then there were plunge pools. We have one that has a kind of bench around it. Mm. That implies that people mm. may actually have sat in that water for right. some time. Because uh, there was abundant supplies of hot water, there were also larger swimming baths here. This was very atypical. Most Roman bathhouses did not have very much hot water because it had to be heated Crazy, and so yeah. it was expensive. Mm. Here it was all free, mm. so they could have large pools. And what's the sort of atmosphere? This is social time, is it? This is uh, yes. chatting and you'd go with friends or... Yeah, absolutely. If you were there for some time, you might eat, you might drink. Mm. You'd uh, probably want uh, something to drink whilst you were there. Mm. Uh, just water, if nothing else. Yeah. But there would have been people there uh, offering you probably food and mm. snacks. Being benches to sit on yeah. where you might sit and chat with other people. Mm -hmm. This would all be quite leisurely. Is this all types of people from all walks of life? Or? Uh, in principle, yes. Yeah. Um, you could see people from all walks of life right. in a bathhouse. Okay. Gender's mixed as well? Yes, that practice varies. Mm. 
In the second century, there are several injunctions to the effect that uh, mixed bathing should be banned. Uh, well, the fact that these injunctions are repeated right. uh, shows that clearly they're not yeah. properly observed. They were ignored. Yeah. Um, but I think, again, practice would vary from one bathhouse right. to another. A significant bathhouse like that in Bath that probably had a high degree of official control was probably fairly closely following the rules. Right. If it was one of 800 downtown bathhouses uh, in Rome, yeah. it was uh, one on the corner, then who knows what practice might have gone on there. In a very different social right. setting. Okay, brilliant, thank you. Stephen, tell uh, me about the, how the baths come to an end. The, the first place to go to see this is to go to the spring itself. Uh, that is because 12,500 Roman coins have been recovered from the spring. What we see is that at the end of the 4th century, the last one gets thrown in. This is telling us two things. One is that there was decline in the use of coin. People step back from that. The nature of the economy changes. It seems to be less and less of a cash economy. The other thing it's reflecting is that at the end of the 4th century, the emperor at the time issued an edict ordering the closure of pagan temples throughout the empire. This was not good if you had a temple dedicated to a pagan deity. That would be a problem with your... It was, your, yes. Your work expectancy. Yeah, so there's two, cons- two factors taking place there. So one is to do with the immediate politics of the day, which is the closure of pagan temples, but the other is to do with a longer-acting uh, issue. And uh, this was to do with growing insecurity in the empire, the fact that trade was breaking down, And at the beginning of the 5th century, the Romans basically ceased to support Britain any longer from central resources, and it was left to its own devices. So where we've seen inscriptions of people coming from overseas as a feature of life here, this must be starting to break down. We can also see decline in another area. Standing at this point, we can see the large fragment over there of, uh, from the roof of the Great Bath, and we can also see a lead pipe. The maintenance of this site would have been fairly intensive to keep it going. The water channels, if they're not regularly maintained, would quickly silt up. If there were problems with the fabric that needed repair, then if it didn't get the repair, then those parts of the site would fall into ruin. It could quickly fall into a state of dilapidation. So we can see specifically an original lead pipe from Roman days here in front of us, which has obviously suffered from the end of the temple. Well, I think a pipe like this would almost certainly have got blocked if it wasn't regularly maintained. The fragment of roof over there, well, that's symptomatic of a more serious problem, probably long-term neglect of the building fabric. Was the end of the bath a process or was it a catastrophic big bang end? Did they try and maintain it for, for a while? Uh, It was being used. We know that, well, adjacent to the bars in the precinct, there are signs of sort of encroachment of unsatisfactory buildings in Mm. that area. We also see periodic attempts to lay uh, a new surface, fairly inferior standard. uh, Something's going on, there's some level of activity. It's not a lot. Can we date the last of those bits of activity? We can't can't give them a hard date. Uh, This is because we don't have coins circulating. It seems that it's sometime in the beginning of the 5th century. Beginning of the 5th century, so around about the time when Honorius withdraws the legions. That's right, yes, yes, yes. And and one thing we can't see from this vantage point is a piece of literature. In the uh, Saxon Exeter book, written in the 10th century, 
It records a poem from an earlier era, indeed probably written in the 8th century, known to us as The Ruin. It describes uh, a grand building with hot water flowing through its ruins, with the metal ties, as they were known, holding together large blocks of masonry. All of these things can be seen here on this site. It was written by a monk who was almost certainly serving in a monastery that had been set up adjacent to the springs and the surviving Roman bars. But what he describes is a building in a state of ruinous disrepair. It's not a building that's still in use anymore. It's an amazing poem, isn't it? It's very evocative of that sense of wonder of the civilization that passed before. Yes, absolutely. That's it for this week, then. You can find some pictures and a copy of the poem The Ruin, by the way, on the website, should you be feeling poetic. We have just one more episode from the Roman Baths Museum in Bath, and the next time we're going to focus on the religion of the complex and its place in the religion of the local Britons and of the wider empire. We'll get to meet two mysterious and fascinating characters that lie at the heart of the whole place, Sulis Minerva and the Gorgon. Plus, we'll hear about one of the exceptional features of the site, the cursed tablets, and you'll finally find out what you had to do in the Roman world to be cursed with the loss of your mind and your eyes. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks again to everyone at the Roman Baths Museum. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.